Our scripture is from Isaiah chapter 49. Listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention, you peoples far from far away. God called me before I was born and named me when I was in my mother's womb. God made my mouth like a sharp sword and hid in me, hid me in the shadow of God's hand. God made me a polished arrow and hid me away in the quiver. And God said to me, you are my representative, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my cause is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. And now God says, who formed me in the womb to be a partner to bring Jacob back to God and that Israel might be gathered to God for I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God has become my strength. God says, it is too light a thing that you should be my representative to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by nations, the slave of rulers. Kings shall see and stand up, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, has chosen you. These are our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. I know because I saw some of you there that I'm not alone and having heard Nicole Hannah-Jones when she was a speaker with the Progressive Forum. While I was aware of the 1619 Project, a new origin story, it was not until I was given the book at the Progressive Forum that I read it. The 1619 Project originated as a special edition of the New York Times, marking the 400-year anniversary of the arrival of a ship in the British colony of Virginia in August of 1619. That ship was bearing 20 to 30 enslaved people from Africa. The 1619 Project reframes American history by placing slavery and its continuing legacy at the center of our national narrative. I know that many of you have read the articles or the book, and I wonder if you, like me, were amazed at how much you did not know. I was almost completely ignorant of the significance of the period of Reconstruction, the period of only 12 years, 1865 to 1877, during which many formerly enslaved men were elected to three local, state, and federal offices from states all over the South, including 16 black men who were elected to Congress and one person black man elected as a United States Senator. This group of legislatures helped to pass the 13th Amendment, which outlawed slavery, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which codified black American citizenship for the first time, prohibited housing discrimination, and gave all Americans the right to buy and inherit property. 
the 14th Amendment, ensuring citizenship to any person born in the United States and guaranteeing equal protection under the law, and the 15th Amendment, guaranteeing the right to vote to all men, regardless of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. At the state level, Hannah Jones writes, these black officials joined with white Republicans, some of whom came down from the North, to write the most egalitarian state constitutions the South had ever seen. They helped pass more equitable tax legislation and laws that prohibited discrimination in public transportation, accommodation, and housing. Perhaps their biggest achievement was the establishment of the public school. For the first time in the South, free public education was available to everyone, including poor whites and newly freed blacks. All of this in only 12 years. Three constitutional amendments, the Civil Rights Act, brand new state constitutions, and the establishment of public education in the South. But then, abruptly, it was over. Hannah Jones writes, in 1877, President Rutherford B. Hayes, in order to secure a compromise with Southern Democrats that would grant him the presidency in a contested election, agreed to pull federal troops from the South. With the troops gone, white Southerners quickly went about educating, excuse me, quickly went about eradicating the gains from Reconstruction. This set off a backlash against African-Americans so brutal that they called it the second slavery. The gains for which they had worked were snatched away at least from them. Hannah Jones explains, thanks in significant part to the progressive policies and laws black people championed, white Southern, Southerners experienced substantial improvement in their lives, even as they forced black Americans back into quasi-slavery. Can you imagine what that must have been like? 250 years of struggle to gain freedom, and when freedom begins to take shape, it's taken away. Why would you even continue to try after that? Why continue to carry the burden of hope? Reading Isaiah this week, I hear echoes of these questions. In our passage for today, we find I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing. Vanity. The people of Israel knew what it was to strive and gain and then lose it all. Through a series of kings, most notably David, they built a kingdom, but they were only independent for a short time. Soon they found themselves under the threat or under the thumb of a series of foreign powers, Assyria, Egypt, Persia, Babylon, each of which vied back and forth for control of the land and the people. Sometimes the Israelites cooperated with the superpower of the moment. 
Sometimes they resisted. Sometimes they even succeeded in removing the external powers, but the foreign armies always marched back in, always with a vengeance. Again and again, leaders were hauled off to exile. Puppet rulers were put in their place, and the people were taxed to bear survival. Finally, in 587 BCE, the Babylonians stormed back in in a wave of destruction. They burned and smashed the temple to the ground. They took the leaders into exile, an exile that lasted a generation. Our passage today from Isaiah speaks to the end of that exile as the people finally face the prospect of return. But what they will be returning to is no longer the nation of their forebearers. It's now a wasteland. I've labored in vain, the prophet laments. I've spent my strength on nothing and vanity. But David kept reading, and the passage continues, and then we find, yet surely my cause is with the Lord and my reward is with God. The hope that helped the Israelites survive the exile now helped them push back against what must have been an overwhelming sense of futility. On this Sunday, the day before Martin Luther King Jr. Day, as we look at the state of our country, I confess I feel more of the opening sentiment, more of a kinship with the lament of the prophet. I've labored in vain, spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Of course, much of the labor and sacrifice wasn't mine. Not mine, not done by white people, not by affluent people, not by those with resources like the ones I take for granted. No, the labor was done by generations of black Americans who suffered and worked and believed and hoped Generations of black Americans, and yes, yes, some white Americans who labored and died to gain rights that were then clawed back. And the clawing continued. In this moment, in 2023, efforts continue to hinder access to voting. Voting! One of our most basic rights as citizens. And the public schools for which we can thank those visionaries of reconstruction are under targeted attacks by those who wish to end access to quality education for children of every income, every skin color, every place of residence. So much undone, so much never done, so much to do, it's overwhelming. The voice of God speaks back to the prophet's lament, the lament that it's too much. The voice of God speaks back to the prophet's sense of failure and helplessness. And do you know what God says? God says, it's too light a thing 
that you should be my representative to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to all the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. What they hadn't been able to manage to do for themselves, God now asked them to do for everyone. God is for all the nation. Freedom is for all the nations. Restoration is for all the nations to the end of the earth. Love and justice, comfort and grace are not to be hoarded, but shared. Who is God for? God's for everyone and all the ends of the earth. God's always drawing the circle bigger, always expanding, often well beyond our imagination and certainly beyond our individual ability. Polly Murray wrote, when my brothers try to draw a circle to exclude me, I shall draw a larger circle to include them. Where they speak out for the privileges of a puny group, I shall shout for the rights of all humankind. Polly Murray was born in 1910 and died in 1985. Based on Murray's journey with gender identity, the Polly Murray Center uses she, he, and they, them pronouns when discussing Murray's early life and she, her, hers when speaking on Murray's later life. They were a lawyer, a woman's rights activist, the first black person to earn a doctorate of the science of law degree from Yale, the first black woman to be ordained an Episcopal priest. Many of Murray's essays, poems, and books were essential, foundational works of the civil rights movement. Murray knew something of the prophet's lament something of looking at the struggle and the work and wondering if it was futile. And they also knew the conviction that God's vision is, is bigger, that God's vision is bigger. Murray wrote, in not a single one of these campaigns for equality was I victorious. In other words, in each case, I personally failed. And then they continued. But I have lived to see the thesis upon which I was operating vindicated. And what I have very often said is that I lived long enough to see my lost causes found. The prophet of today's scripture passage from 2nd Isaiah likely died before any of the prophet's lost causes were found. But as biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann notes, second Isaiah gives his people a remarkable gift. He gives them back their faith by means of rearticulating the old story. He gives them the capacity to confront despair rather than being surrounded by it. To confront despair rather than being surrounded by it. Maybe one way we do this confronting of despair in our time is to know again and again that God's vision, God's dream, 
God's desire for the world is bigger, so much bigger than we've imagined. It's too light a thing to limit God's love, God's reach, God's call. And so, my friends, we cannot throw up our hands in despair, however tempted. We Americans of every color have a better life because of the work of black Americans and white allies during Reconstruction and during the Civil Rights era. But gains are always precarious. There are times when we may feel hopeless, overwhelmed, but we cannot give up. When we despair, we remember God's answer to the prophet in Second Isaiah. It's too light a thing that you should be my representatives to only a small group. You're to be a light to the nations, that freedom may reach the ends of the earth. Light to the nations. Others have been that light for us. We remember. We act, doing what is ours to do. And we refuse to be hopeless. Ollie Murray, in Dark Testament, verse 8, wrote, Hope is a crushed stalk between clenched fingers. Hope is a bird's wing broken by a stone. Hope is a word in a tuneless ditty, a word whispered with the wind, a dream of 40 acres and a mule, a cabin of one's own and a moment to rest, a name and a place for one's children, and children's children at last. Hope is a song in a weary throat, Give me a song of hope and a world where I can sing it. Give me a song of faith and a people to believe in it. Give me a song of kindness and a country where I can live it. Give me a song of hope and love and a brown girl's heart to hear it. Amen.